Good morning. Uh, If you are able, I would ask that you please stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, The scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, quote, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. End quote. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can be seated. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? And what we are not, would you make us? For Christ's sake. Amen. Chapter 10 of Hebrews, we begin to turn a corner. The rest of the book after chapter 10 will focus on living in light of what we have learned thus far. This is the foundation that has been set for us. Now chapter 10 is going to remind us once more of what this foundation should be And then the author of Hebrews is going to press us into living out now what we have learned thus far. I have two points for you this morning. There's simply this. Number one, the shadow. Not shadow from Homer Bound. That's a different sermon. You can go listen to that one. Uh, Number one, the shadow. Number two, the substance. The shadow and the substance. Number one, the shadow. The annual repetition of the Old Testament sacrifices shows that they cannot purify the conscience of the worshiper. We see that in verses one to four. The law presented a shadow, not the substance of the good things that were to come in the new covenant. Verse one, for since the law has been but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. The Old Testament sacrifices could only give a picture of the ultimate sacrifice that will be brought about in Christ. But they could not perform the cleansing that was required for the sins of mankind. The shadow is not the substance, but it is an evidence of the substance. 
If you stand in the full morning sun or the evening sun at your back, you will see your shadow there before you. It moves as you move. You can jump, you can run, and your shadow will do the same. But it's not you. It can't eat or drink or give hugs. It is just an evidence of the reality, though. It's the the shadow of the substance that is you, flesh and blood. But it is not something that is the real deal. In the same way, the old covenant, the old sacrificial system was a shadow of the true substance that was to come. And the author of Hebrews is reminding his very Jewish audience that they should not return to this old sacrificial system. And the warning and the encouragement is the same for us today. You may not be tempted to return to offering uh, the blood of bulls and goats as they would have been, as we have already seen in the previous chapters, as the worshipers were on their way to the temple, those who had put faith and trust in Christ would have been tempted to take the sacrifice in hand and go and present before God the sacrifice to be cleansed. It was familiar to them. It was something they could put their hands on and help them feel cleansed. But literally, now that Christ has come, the author is saying they were chasing a shadow. Some of you are chasing your shadow, running around chasing something that is not truly going to give cleansing to your conscience. The shadow is not the substance, but this would be made manifest in the person and work of Christ. The Old Testament worshiper, they're referred to also as those who would draw near to God, would have had some sense of this. They had been promised there was something better to come, something fuller, something richer, a Messiah that would come and cleanse them. They did not simply have faith in the sacrificial system that God had commanded, but they had faith in the thing that was to come. And in faith, they looked forward and performed the sacrifice as God had commanded. In obedience to God's requirements, they performed this shadow sacrificial system with faith in the future substance that the shadow was pointing to. We'll see this in Hebrews 11. We see this here in our text today in the Messianic Psalms like Psalm 40. We have pictures of these things all through the Old Testament pointing to something new and better. In the same way that we've already talked about in Hebrews, how that that our hope, our future-oriented faith in the promises of God yet to be fulfilled, we look forward to those things and we live in those realities. Now, that was kind of how the Old Testament saint, Old Testament worshiper would have interacted with the, the, uh, the Old Covenant. They made this sacrifice knowing that there was something better to come, and their faith was not simply in the doing of this. They trusted that God said that I should offer the sacrifice, and I want to make sure I do that in accordance to the law perfectly, and they trusted that that would forgive their sins, but their faith ultimately, those who actually understood and truly worshiped God and loved Him, understood there was something better to come, and their their hope was in that. This is why David writes forward the Holy Spirit 
in the Messianic Psalms, and it was counted to them as righteousness. The Day of Atonement sacrifices could not cleanse the worshiper's conscience, though. If those sacrifices had cleansed the conscience, there would be no need for them to be repeated. So they understood that there was a forgiveness given at the sacrifice. Put my hand on the animal. The neck of the animal would have been pulled back. The neck would have been slit. The blood would gush forth. And they symbolically transferred their sins upon to that beast and trusted that God would forgive, knowing that there was something better. But they knew that this here was not complete because it had to be repeated again. It could not cleanse their consciences because it had to be done over again. Verse 1b to 2 of our text today, it can never by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have, otherwise they would have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin. Now, the repetition of the sacrifice spoke of the inadequacy of the sacrifice, not the inadequacies of God's forgiveness. This is an important thing, I think, to notice. That the Scripture is clear that God's forgiveness is adequate, it's full, it's perfect, it's complete. Psalms 103, verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Isaiah 38, 17, In love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast my sins behind your back. Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. Micah 7, 19, And he again will have compassion on us and he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. The Old Testament sacrifices and the repetition of it was not a sign of God's inability to forgive sin. God commanded the Old Testament worshiper to follow the sacrificial system that he had laid out and he promised to forgive them according to their obedience to the law that he had laid out. But the Old Testament sacrifice could not accomplish what God had foreordained that Christ would accomplish ultimately. It could not take away sins once and for all. It had to be repeated. Only this was to come through the sacrifice Christ. And the repetition of the sacrifice is not because God's forgiveness was in some ways deficient or that he went back upon his word. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's not as if the Old Testament God is not the same God of the New Testament. It's not as if the Old Testament God was angry, unforgiving, and vindictive, and the New Testament God just got a lot nicer. But that's how people usually function, though, and how they view the Bible. People act as if the New Testament God is uh, making up for being the old, grumpy Old Testament God. That's a funny thought. 
But what people are saying when they reject the Old Testament is that they're really saying that God was saying maybe he was wrong and he's making up for it. I was a little too grumpy and so now it's all under grace and it's just going to be okay. the, The view of sin is the same in the Old as in the New Testament. The wages of sin is what, kids? What is it? It's death. It's death. And that holds true today. We're having a conversation before the service about some of the craziness that's going on in our world. And um, we were talking about arguments that are being made about um, gun control and drag queen story hour and things like this. And we were saying that one of the fundamental problems that's not being brought into these conversations is that there is, there is another kind of death besides a physical death. There is a spiritual death. Right? These things will lead to physical death. They always do lead to destruction in, 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 our, in our world confusion craziness. Saying that something like a drag queen story hour is not going to be harmful to any children. But it will lead to death because sin is never satisfied. Sin is always hungry. And There is a different kind of death, a death that leads to everlasting death. And here's the point. It is not God who is deficient in some way. It is not God who had some kind of a a problem in his sacrificial system. No, he is not the problem. You are always the problem. You are always the problem. To blame God for your sin is to do exactly what your father Adam did and therefore prove the point that you are sinful and under the curse of Adam. Because what did Adam do? He blame shifted. It was the woman you gave me. Those who have a hard time with the penalty for sin do not understand the holiness of God. Do you hear me? Those who have a hard time with the penalty of sin, what God requires, even still today, from all of his word that should be applied to our culture, do not, if they have a problem with that, they do not understand the holiness of God. And if you have a light view on sin, it's because you have a light view on the holiness of God, and you need to go and study the holiness of God to show you how holy, horribly unholy you are. The Old Testament sacrifices were an annual reminder, not a remover, of sin's stain. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. On the Day of Atonement, they would come, and there was a reminder of their sins, not a remover. It was a temporary holding back of God's wrath because sin deserved death, therefore the offering had to be made. But it was a reminder. It was a shadow. It didn't remove it because it was not the substance. Rather than removing sin defilement from the conscience, the slain bulls constituted this reminder of sins every year. Goes on to say, but in the same, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder every year of sin. Verse 4 For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's impossible. Numbers 
5.15 talks about um, this offering of remembrance to, to bring uh, iniquity and sin uh, to, to your mind. And it was used um, in addressing a sus- suspicion for adultery. But here the author of Hebrews' point is much broader. He's saying again and again the Day of Atonement sacrifices brought the Israelites, brought to their minds the reminder of their guilt before a perfectly holy God. It showed them their unholiness. And only with the new covenant arrival of Christ and his sacrifice would God remember their sins no more. So this is in Hebrews 8, 12, 10, 17. Jeremiah 31 speaks about this as well. So verse 4 says, For the It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the death of bulls and goats cannot atone for human sin. And this annual sacrifice reminded them over and over again that it was not sufficient to cleanse them completely. It had to be repeated every year. These terms, make perfect or cleansed, are words used to help describe the results of forgiveness that was received, namely the purification of conscience that would qualify worshipers to draw near to a holy God, unable to draw near to a holy God. Why? Because of our sinfulness. And in the presence of God's holiness and his glory, you would be destroyed. You see this in the story of Moses on the mountain, who desires to look at God's glory, and God says, it will destroy you. Not because God is mean or angry and just like shooting people with with, um, lightning bolts from heaven, but because of Moses' sinfulness. He could not stand in the presence of a holy God. And the same is true here. This is why there was a veil guarding the holy of holies because of our sin. And so much of that, we see the merciful nature of our God to put a barrier there and to lay out a system of sacrifice pointing to a greater one. And this purification that they were receiving from the Old Testament sacrifice could never be achieved, though, by this Levitical priesthood because the Scripture says the law made nothing perfect. And so it was not able to completely cleanse a sin-stained people and allow them to draw near to God. Hebrews 7 talks about this in verses 18 to 19. 7.11 of Hebrews says, If perfection had been attained to the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Hebrews 9.9, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipers. The blood of slain animals could not sanctify or purify the flesh. Only Christ's blood can purify the human conscience. Hebrews 9, 13 through 14 talks about this. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the, split, and, and the sprinkling of the defiled person with ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. 
Now, the Old Testament sacrificial system did accomplish what God had ordained that it was to accomplish. I've already, already mentioned some of this. It was to do this, to clearly demonstrate the sinfulness of the sacrificer, to demonstrate their need to be cleansed before a holy God, to show the total depravity of mankind and the insufficiency of the animal sacrifice because it was not the substance, and to forgive their sins, but to point forward to something better. That's why it was established. And the blood of bulls and goats was unable to cleanse sin. Why? Why? Because a person is needed to substitute for people. A person is needed to substitute for people. A sinless person is needed to be sacrificed for sinful people. An obedient person is needed to pay for a rebellious people. A person with riches is needed to pay the debt of an impoverished person who cannot pay their own debt. A faithful son is needed to stand in the place of rebellious, unfaithful children. Therefore, the blood of bulls and goats wasn't sufficient and this is why we sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Because you have absolutely nothing to bring. And when you open your hands, all you see is the blood that is on them of your own doing. Your rebellion. Your idols that you have set up for yourself. You have taken God's name in vain. You have not observed the Sabbath or kept it holy. And you have dishonored your father and your mother, and you have murdered, committed adultery, stolen, borne false witness against your neighbor, and coveted everything that he has. Am I wrong? No. We have broken God's law. We are condemned. And the reason that you have done this ultimately, though, is because you have broken the most important commandment, the first one. You have put other gods before the one true God. You have carved images of them and bowed down to them in worship. Martin Luther said that you will keep the rest of the commandments if you keep the first one. Because all sin is a problem with idolatry. You've bowed the knee to money, possessions, pornography, pleasure, comfort, perfectionism, knowledge, affirmation, power, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And we stand guilty. And if you think you're not that bad, that's pride. And that's the one that God hates the most. In the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, it goes on to say, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, because worship belongs to God alone. But people bow the knee to these other things, therefore God must judge them. He goes on to say, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. But he also here shows a promise. Also steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. But as I've already stated, we can't keep his commandments. We're unable to keep them. And this is no fault of God, but it is your fault. So it was necessary. 
at the appointed time. What was the appointed time? Exactly the time in which Christ showed up. Just long enough to show people that they could not do it on their own. Just long enough to show people how truly sinful they were. That we hear John the Baptist saying what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And you see something similar in John's baptism as he's preparing the way for Jesus. John's baptism represents the law. It represents repentance. It represents conviction of sins. It was to show people their inability to save themselves. And John's message of baptism was especially offensive to his fellow Jews. And the reason for this was that, that baptism for the Jewish people had something very significant attached to it because that's how proselytes, people who became Jews, were baptized into God's family. And so what John the Baptist was saying to Roman soldiers and to Pharisees, to prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners, you are all guilty. And he's saying to them, to the Jewish people who took offense, especially the Pharisees, you see, look, unless you, unless you are willing to repent and trust in the substance that is to come, that is now coming, the perfect sacrifice, you cannot claim to be God's people. All the promises that God has brought forth are fulfilled in Christ for you, and therefore you must repent and be born again. And so the substance Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the Lamb of God, comes. He's born of a virgin. He lives a sinless life. And he pays the penalty on the cross that we deserved. The substance. As he entered the world, Christ announced that he was replacing the Old Testament sacrifices by his own obedience to God's will through willfully offering his body. If you have your Bibles open, you can go over to Psalm 40. I'd like you to see it here. Psalm 40. Six to eight. We'll get there in just a second. But the words in Psalm 40 are the words of the incarnate Christ. This is Jesus talking. And this is why the author in Hebrews here quotes this. Verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. I mean, we already saw the need for the, for the body of Christ. We already saw the need for the incarnate Christ all the way back in Hebrews chapter 2, 14 to 17. I preached a sermon on that. It says this. I'll just pull out a couple highlights. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, that's me and you, that's humanity, he, speaking of Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, they didn't need help, the offspring of Abraham. The offspring of Adam needed help. Therefore, verse 17 of 2, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to serve 
in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And it says that he was tempted in every way like we were tempted, yet what? Without sin. But he had to have a human body. And this is why he is speaking this in Psalms 40. If you're there at Psalm 40, we'll look at it. So, Psalms 40, 6 through 8, contrast animal sacrifices that do not please God to Christ's sacrifice that was faithful to God's will and therefore a pleasing sacrifice to God. It says this in Psalms 40, 6 through 8. In sacrifices and offerings you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. And this is what the author of Hebrews is quoting. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a, a body you have prepared for me. It reminds me of Psalms 51 that says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a contrite heart. The Old Testament sacrifices were always after people's heart, not simply the performance of them. We already read some of that this morning in our liturgy. They were offering sacrifices of outward appearance, but God has always been after the heart. Since the heart is so sinful and wicked, it could only cleanse for a time, but not completely do away with the sins of the people. In Psalms 40, it says, uh, but you have given me an open ear, or literally, I think it's in the King James Version that says this, you have uh, dug for me ears. This is a Hebrew translation. And then in, in uh, Hebrews 10, he translates it, a body you have prepared for me. And some of the Greek translators were probably trying to say this. Christ was given a human body, and he gave his whole body in obedience to God's voice. He gave his whole body, his whole being, in obedience to God's voice. Do you give of your whole body, your whole life, in obedience to the will of God? Do you give in obedience to his call and to his voice? And the, the terms here, will and body, in, in Psalms 40 are really key. The reason Jesus came into the world was to accomplish the will of God in offering up his body. Are you still with me? He came into the world to do the Father's will and to offer up his body. You must reject a teaching that says Jesus was simply a good teacher. And that's why he came into the world, just to be a teacher. Everybody liked Jesus when he went around teaching and doing good, healing people and feeding people. But when Jesus claimed exclusively to be king and lord, and the only way to come to the Father, they put him on a cross. And humanity still does the same thing. Well, Christianity is just fine as long as it stays in its little corner. But the exclusive claims of the gospel is what infuriate people. And in their heart, they know this. This is why they are not content to have it stay in its corner, but must snuff it out completely. Because they know in their hearts truly that Jesus is Lord. Because the laws of God are written upon the hearts of man. This human body is the body of flesh that he shared with us as it says in Hebrews 2. Psalms 40, 
6 through 8, announces that Christ's obedience will replace the law's sacrificial system. 8 through 10 of our text today in, in Hebrews 10. When he said above, you have neither desired or taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I'm going to read that again, verse 10. And by that will, the will of Christ, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Although God's law commanded animal sacrifices, their deaths did not win his pleasure. His pleasure was not given towards the worshiper, ultimately. That's why it says that in verse 8. You have neither desired or taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. And it's interesting today how often even those of us who are in Christ, and you know what we're talking about this morning, and you know that Jesus was the once for all, final, full, and complete offering upon the cross, and if you put faith and trust in him alone for the forgiveness of sins, Jesus, God cleanses and forgives and forgets. You believe that? Yeah, Ben does. So you, so you believe that, but how often do we go and try to offer things in addition to the offering of Christ to make God feel pleased with us. And he is not pleased with us. He is pleased with the offering of his son and our faith in that. Jesus is the only offering that could remove our sinful pollution once and for all. Jesus' will was to obey the will of the Father and he did so perfectly, without sin, throughout his whole life. Uh, Hebrews 4, 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are yet without sin. Tempted in every way, yet remained faithful. Christ coming to God replaces the law sacrifices. Verse 9 of our text, Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Jesus submitted his will to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he say? What did he say? Not my will. What is it? Yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus said, I have come to do your will. This is something that a beast could never say. Jesus says, I have come to do your will, Father. Not my will, but yours be done. But our answer is always, not your will, but, but me. Let my will be done, Father. Let me have what I want. And this is why the sacrifice of the will is important. Jesus says, I have come to do your will because a beast could never say that. And the reason it's important because of this. Because we are willfully sinful. You are not just sinful, you are willfully sinful. 
This is why the will of Jesus to do the will of the Father is so important in the offering up of his body. Because a person must pay for the sins of people. A faithful person must pay for the sins of unfaithful people. A willful sacrifice, an obedient sacrifice, must pay for the sins of a willfully sinful people. Alistair Begg, commenting on this, says, the ultimate citadel of sin is the consenting will of a man or a woman. Where sin resides in our wills, we are not only lost helplessly, but we are also lost willfully. And therefore, those of us who are willful sinners need to be reminded by someone who, we need to be redeemed, I'm sorry, by someone who brings their will and offers it up in sacrifice. So when the Lord Jesus, for the first time, and for the only time, and perfectly, the truth of substitution is established. Jesus is the substance of the shadow. He's the true, better sacrifice. He was the sacrifice that God had ordained to come, to cleanse, to forgive. The Old Testament sacrifices offered an an unwilling substitute in the flesh of bulls and goats. And they were performed by, by earthly priests. Jesus is both the willful substance of the sacrifice and the heavenly priest who performs the sacrifice once and for all. God's sovereign will has overcome our willful disobedience by the willful obedience of Jesus. You can, if, if you want to summarize this passage, you can write that down. God's sovereign will has overcome our willful disobedience by the willful obedience of Jesus Christ. And now, we have the ability, because of the righteousness of Christ, to willfully follow him, to submit our will to him. Christ did God's will by offering his body once for all, and thus sanctifying all of us. Verse 10. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Christ's willful self-offering in death has sanctified his people once and for all. Let me read you just a couple other passages uh, from Hebrews. Hebrews 7, 27. He has no need speaking of Jesus, like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9, 12, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews 9, 26, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundations of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And one more, 28 of 9. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, 
will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. So if you're in Christ, when he returns again, he will not subject himself to the torment and punishment that he subjected himself to when he was here before. He will come as a conquering king. And what Hebrews is saying, what the author is saying is, since this sacrifice has been offered once for all, and as we learned last week where he, he ascended and now he rules and reigns as he offered and sprinkled his blood upon the mercy seat in the heavenlies, when he returns again, those who are in Christ and under his blood covering will not hide their face. Where they will gaze upon the glory of Jesus Christ, the resurrected, ascended, ruling and reigning Christ, and they will not turn their face away. Something that an Old Testament worshiper would have said was murder, or would have said was suicide. That's why they stayed away from the Holy of Holies. Here the author is saying to the Hebrews, is using this verb sanctify. And it's, it's not referring here to this lifelong process. We usually use sanctify in this lifelong process whereby the Holy Spirit makes us more and more like Jesus. He's using this word sanctify here in a different way. He's saying, rather, that this sanctify is the status of blameless purity. So the offering of bulls and goats could only cleanse like the flesh it could not cleanse the conscience. It could not give you a status of blameless purity. What the author is saying is, is if you have put faith in Christ, then before a righteous and holy God, your status is one of blameless purity. And I hope that encourages you. Some of you are very sleepy because it's hot in here, and it'll hit you later. And you'll be very thankful for the status that you have before a holy God. And again, if you understand the holiness of God, you will understand the severity of your sinfulness and rebellion. And therefore, this truth will be precious to you. This is, this is the, in 1 Peter, this is why he says that we have not been bought with, with riches of this world, to paraphrase, but by the blood of Christ, the precious blood of Christ that, that has no price. And if you understand that reality, then you will want to live in a way that demonstrates to everybody how precious the blood of Jesus Christ is. It's holy and blameless before your God because you have been given a status of blameless purity and the righteousness of Christ, that you may walk in this newness of life. This status given to you immediately upon those who confess Christ. And you are able to enter into the holy of holies, not timidly, but what have we already learned? With boldness, with confidence, to find help in time of need. And what holds you there is not having to go and make a bunch of sacrifices and then give it to the priest and he has to do his own sacrifices and go in. No, you bust into the throne room of God and there is a reverence there, sure, still. But you're there because you are covered by the blood of Christ. 
The righteous requirement of God has been satisfied in him. Later in chapter 10, verse 14, says, For by a single offering, one offering, not many repeated, but by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Listen, please. If you are in Christ, that is your status. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified by his once for all full and final sacrifice upon the cross. Hebrews 9, 13 through 14, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with its ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from, the dead, from dead works to serve the living God. Amen? So let's respond to this now in our time remaining. Our response should be this. This truth gives you, if you're a believer, firm confidence. Not iffy not, not really sure, but firm confidence that Christ's willful self-sacrifice has perfected, purified, and sanctified you once for all. That is your status. That is your confidence. That is the response to this text. And that's why the author is reminding us like once more you watch uh, Shakespeare's Henry V, once more under the bridge. Like, we're going to go back and talk about it again. Because he wants to make sure you understand that righteousness is not found in the sacrificial system that had its part to play. It's been done away with. Now it is Christ and his sacrifice. And through his righteousness, now you can keep the law of God to his glory. But that is your confidence in standing. It has removed sins, stains from our consciences. You ever have a, my dad um, was very particular about stains in his house on like the furniture and stuff. And he had five kids and four of them were boys. And so it was just a lost cause for a while. But we had, I remember we had a white carpet in, in the living room. And um, we were good Baptist kids, so we only drank Welch's grape juice, right? Not, um, not wine. And I remember one time having a big old glass of that grape juice. I, probably one of my brothers knocked it over, probably, because they're dumb. But it wasn't me. I know it wasn't. At least that was my story to my dad. I just remember it, it spilled and whoosh, all over, like right in the middle of the room. And it was like one of those places you couldn't put a rug over it. You couldn't put like a couch over it. It was in the middle of the room. And I remember my father and me both, oh, I remember just being like, and like I'm, my brother's been like, you better pack up now, man. Just go live in the barn. I remember being down on hands and knees, helping my dad clean it, clean it, clean it, clean it. And it stayed there. They, they actually replaced uh, that carpet in the family room just a matter of years ago. And that stain was still there. And it was a constant reminder of, of you know, Jeff spilled his grape juice out here. And you have things like that in your life, don't you? The, the, the stains of your sins that you remember. Those things that you really don't want anybody to know. 
Like if we, like we, if we played them up here on the screen with your name under it, or just a sentence of what you did. I see you, your, your, your eyes going down now. But here's the joy and here's the truth of what the author of Hebrews is saying through the Holy Spirit that the offering of Christ once for all has removed sin's stains from our consciences and it able, enables us to draw near to a holy God because of the, the blood stains of Christ that cover us. This is our confidence. What the repeated offerings of blood of bulls and goats could not do, Jesus has done fully and finally by offering up willfully his own body upon the cross for us. God had ordained those things just to be a shadow of the true substance that was to be accomplished in Christ. And the author here is really warning, as I already stated earlier in the sermon, he's warning this very Jewish audience to which is reading his letter to not return to this old system that God himself had said was just temporary. Don't return to that. And, and the pool was real for them. Don't return to that. How hard for it is you, how, how hard for it is you, <laughs> how hard is it for you to, to trust without actually taking something in your hand to sacrifice? Like, I, I like having something tangible to be able to do, to help me feel like I'm right before God. And what the scripture says to us is, is that's faith in Christ, and that I don't like the feeling of nothing in my hand I bring. I don't like that. I want to be able to say here, look at these things. What does the scripture say? Even our righteousness is like filthy rags and offensive to a holy God. Even your best efforts fall horribly short. And your smallest sin is indictable. What did, uh, what did um, Edward say? And sinners in the hand of angry, angry God, even the smallest sin makes you indictable and you are like, you are no, you are no, um, not able to save yourself um, just like a spider dangling over hell. You drop a rock on that spider web and it would bust. That's all your righteousness. That's all your, your good works. It's not gonna hold you. It's not gonna make you clean before a holy God. And it's so hard for us to not have something tangible. But God does give us something tangible in his kindness because he knows what we are prone to. He gives us what we're gonna celebrate here in just a little bit, the supper, the sign of the new covenant. But what does it represent? His body and his blood poured out and broken for us. It's a little something we take in our hands to remind us that nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. We feast upon Christ because he is the true bread, the true wine. Those who drink and eat of him will never thirst or hunger again. The same instructions and warning that the author of Hebrews is giving to, to this very Jewish audience who would want to go back to the temple and offer sacrifices is the same warning here for us today. Many of us are tempted to find a feeling of cleansing of the conscience in something other than Jesus alone. What is your, what is your preferred sacrificial system? 
What makes you feel cleansed? So we'll end with this. Let's just talk about a few things. How are you going to be tempted to seek, quote-unquote, cleansing from something other than Christ? I think it will come in this. You will be tempted to find a, what we call a, quote-unquote, substitute Savior or a functional Savior. You ever known a functional alcoholic? Right? Like, people who don't know them that well wouldn't know that they were an alcoholic because they can function well enough, but they're dependent upon that thing to get them through the day to drown out whatever pain and hardship or whatever things they don't want to think about. In the same way, we look for functional saviors, things that make us have a sense of cleansing. Some of you will probably seek a functional savior simply in the form of a distraction. Something to help me avoid having to deal with my sin. Anything that eases the momentary feeling of guilt and takes away that thought of guilt, the thought of my sinfulness, I'm just going to push it aside. That's, that's, why people, that's why people don't read their Bibles. <laughs> that's why they only le- read garbage Christian books. Because they want distractions. They, they don't want to be, they don't be uh, reminded of their sin. What is the, what is the world addicted to? Constant scrolling, constant scrolling, constantly having our minds engaged on something, watching stuff, watching the next show, binge watching, on and on and on, distractions, turn the music on loud so I don't have to sit quietly with my own thoughts because I don't like what creeps up when I am by myself in the quiet before God. Pornography, gluttony, entertainment, pleasure, comfort, weed, alcohol, perhaps some kind of mood-altering medication that you're dependent upon, a relationship. Young people, listen to me. Satan will come to you and try to distract you at some time in your life by following him with a relationship. And you will come home to your parents and be like, she's the best, she's the one, you know. Or young lady, exactly, James. Don't you believe it? Should you want to get married? Yeah, you should. Should you want to have a family? Yeah, you should. But I cannot tell you how many times I've talked, especially to young men who have walked away from their commitment to their covenant community because some girl they met, and she's the one, they weren't leading well, so they, she led him astray. Satan will bring these kinds of things had a, a young man I discipled not too long ago that that very thing happened. Satan is such a sly thing, man. He's such a, he, he comes as an angel of light, doesn't he? And I heard recently that that relationship only lasted about a month. So I pray that he will have humility to come back because he's welcome. Your job... some kind of distractions, a church that won't step on your toes, maybe one with a lower standard. Some of you will seek a functional savior in the affirmation of others. Well, if people say I'm a good guy, then I must be a good guy. When you feel like people affirm you, it gives you some sense of confidence that you must be doing the right thing. You feel loved, you feel affirmed, 
You feel important, right? Some will seek a functional savior in the form of perfectionism. This is what this is what comes after me. This is what tempts me. You think you can be your own savior? You think you can be your own savior? You, you'll seek a feeling of cleansing, or some form of cleansing from moral acts of piety. Maybe some kind of a meaningful job where I'm really actually making a difference. Or maybe my perfect Bible study program that I've got all laid out, and if I just do it right, make sure I read it, but then you forget, oh yeah, I'm actually supposed to go and live this. But I can't be bothered, kids, because I'm reading my perfectly laid out Bible study. I'll talk to you later. Maybe a volunteer. Maybe it's your perfect marriage. Maybe it's your perfect parenting. Maybe it's helping the poor. Maybe it's having a productive household. Maybe it's always giving the perfect answer. You can fill in the blank on this later. When I, f- I feel God is satisfied with me when I blank, and you can fill that in later. I feel like God has satisfied me when I do blank. You know, in the Pilgrim's Progress, before Christian actually gets to the cross, he has his heavy burden. And he's been living in the town of destruction, and he's escaped that through reading of the truth in his book, in the Bible. And the consciousness of his sin is heavy, and he has a burden upon his back. You see the art from Homer's Progress, and he's bent over with a large, boulder-looking pack on his back, strapped to his shoulders. And the closer he gets to the cross, the more heavy it gets. And right before he gets to the cross, he encounters a man named Worldly Wiseman. And Worldly Wiseman says to him, uh, in a manner of speaking, he says, don't go on the straight and narrow anymore. It's, it's very hard, and it looks like you really want to be rid of your burden. So I would like you to go this way. And if you go this way, you will find, shortly, a town called Morality. And I'll read you a quote from it. Why, in yonder village named Morality, there dwells a gentleman whose name is Legality, a very judicious man that has skill to help men off with such burdens as thine is from your shoulders. Yea, to my knowledge, he has done a great deal of good this way. I am besides, he has skill to cure those who are somewhat crazed in their wits from their burdens. To him, as I said, thou mayest go and be helped presently. His house is not quite far a mile from this place. And if he should not be at home himself, he hath a pretty young man to his son whose name is Civility, that can do as well as the old gentleman himself there. I say, thou mayest be eased of your burden if you would but go this way. And in the town of Morality, he finds out that it is even more destructive than the city of destruction in which he came from. Because in the city of destruction, the danger was clearly seen. He understood the wickedness and the enmity against God was apparent. But in this city of morality, however, burdens were falsely discarded. By doing X, Y, and Z, I have a feeling now that God loves me. Falsely discarded guilt was smothered and silenced by moral acts that made him feel good. And all the citizens in the town of morality were deceived into believing that all was well, like Jeremiah 6 says. They say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Man, in counseling, I see this all the time. P, 
peace, everything's good. And you're like, no, it's not. No, it's not. Because you have set up for yourself your own list of rules, and so it doesn't matter what the scriptures say because that functional thing, like a functional alcoholic, is getting you through the day, and well, it happens to be working for you, but it can't save. So listen, you've got to resist the hellish lie that tells you that you can solve your own problems. Striving to do good can remove the guilt of your sin. Only the cross and the shed blood of Christ can bring you peace and atone for your sins. And, and Christian, as he goes towards the city of morality, he realizes that the mountain of legality begins to crush him. An evangelist comes to him, preaches him the gospel, and points him towards the cross. Here's the quote when he gets to the cross. At the top of the hill stood a cross, and a little below at the bottom was a stone tomb. In my dream, just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden was loosened from his shoulders and it fell off his back. It tumbled and continued to do so down the hill until it came to the mouth of a tomb where it fell inside and was seen no more. And was seen no more. So how can you combat this desire to find functional saviors? You have to do so by being a living sacrifice. Romans 12, 1. If you have not memorized Romans 12, 1 and 2, you should. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Believers are called to give themselves entirely to God as a living sacrifice, just as Christ entirely gave himself willfully, full body to God to sacrifice for the atonement of our sins, we also are to give fully ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. This, this, this living sacrifice language, it conjures up the ideas of the Old Testament sacrifices, right? but ultimately the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Jesus willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father to cleanse those who put faith in him. Once for all, full, sanctified, cleansed, completely forgiven. Jesus came into the world to do the Father's will. This unique redemptive mission of the Father had to assign to him and he obeyed it fully. He was fully captivated. Listen, Jesus was fully captivated by doing God's will. He was fully captivated by God's word. And that is the reality that the new covenant believer should walk in. Fully captivated to do God's will. Fully captivated by God's word. To the righteousness of Christ that he has given to us, we are able to walk in obedience to the Father's will just as he did and offering our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Through Christ's righteousness, we can walk in God's statutes. We can delight in keeping his law and doing his will. A willing sacrifice looks like, like trust, joy, obedience, humility, selflessness, obedience. We are like little priests now, offering up sacrifices of praise to our God. 
The old covenant worshipers only had to offer at the appointed time the sacrifices that could not take away their sins. New covenant worshipers offer up every moment of their whole lives sacrifices of praise to the God who has saved them through the redemption of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. But man, are we prone to return to the sacrificial systems of our making? And I wonder what systems you will return to. What systems of worship will you look to to be cleansed? Full forgiveness is granted through Christ, and he draws us close to God and moves us into eager obedience to do his will, and no substitute Savior can do that for you. It's like the person who uses, abuses a substance, and it takes away the thought of pain for a moment, but when they sober up, it's even worse than it was before, and it leads to destruction. That, king, that thing cannot save you, but you bring offerings to it daily. You know, we were talking about this in the office this week. An idol is just an inanimate object that we bring to life when we bring offerings to it. And the scripture says that, that they fashion idols with their hands. They're made out of wood and stone, and they set them up. They have no power to save, do they? They have no power to save at all. They're just, it's just a hunk of wood. It's just a rock. But they bring it to life by worshiping it, by bringing, it to, uh, bringing to it their offerings. You fashion these idols with your own hands, set the terms of sacrifice and forgiveness, and then bow down in hopes for a sense of cleansing. The scripture reminds us that those who do this will become like those idols that they serve. You have a packed, full schedule that makes you feel a sense of significance. Well, now you serve it, right? Hey, can we get together? We want to have you over our house. Or, hey, could you help me do this? A brother or sister in Christ says, well, I can't, too busy. Perhaps it's because you serve this feeling of significance that you get with a full calendar. Everybody you talk to today, how you doing? Busy, just busy. It's like the, the God that we serve in our society now, just busy. Just run around like crazy people. That doesn't sound like something I want to serve. You watch pornography to distract you, and now, even though you hate it, it's all you can think about. People who worship security are usually super anxious. People who worship social standing are usually pretty insecure. People who worship safety usually live in fear. The point is, is that whatever you set up and serve will demand sacrifices and life from you. Maybe I didn't mention what your idol was, but whatever you look to for cleansing other than Christ will demand that you sacrifice your life and it will leave you with nothing. But Jesus sacrifices his life so that you may have life and have it abundantly. As we close, um, I was reminded of this analogy recently. Um, you can actually go on Google uh, and you can Google, did they get it all? And this is a common question among cancer patients cancer survivors. They'll see, you'll see forums and, and, and conversation chat rooms and so on where people are asking about um, side effects and so on. It's common for people to say, I, I had the surgery, but I still feel pain. Did they get it all out? And this is what Satan comes to us 
who are in Christ. And he brings us all the stains on the living room floor that we can't scrub out no matter how hard we try. And he says, did Jesus get it all? Did he really get all of the sin out? Are you actually truly cleansed? And I could spend a whole other hour talking about reassurances why, but you've already heard. So the answer to that, the answer the believer is to give is a resounding yes. Jesus got all of it. He got all of it. This doesn't mean that we do not feel the weight of our sin. The closer you get to a holy God, the more you understand your sinfulness, and the more you realize you are cleansed. The closer you get to God, the more you realize your sinfulness and his holiness, and you realize you are cleansed, and it overflows in thanksgiving to God. John Bunyan said this, there is in Jesus Christ more merit and righteousness than the whole world has even need of. So therefore rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, reminded of the hymn, O perfect redemption, purchased of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. O come to the Father, through Jesus the Son, and give him the glory, because great things he has done. And we all echo the words of the hymn writer, great things you have done.